This is a special call to action to our listeners to financially support this podcast and spread awareness of the Native Plants Dialogue through exclusive Plant Native Nebraska merch at plant-native-nebraska.myspreadshop.com. Wear our designs in your best effort to convert your friends and neighbors, or just simply look cool. Thank you for your continued support in our quest to help Nebraska plant native. Hello, and welcome to the Plant Native Nebraska podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Barlman. If you are new to tuning in, this show is for native plant enthusiasts, aspiring gardeners, suburban homeowners, growers, and thinkers anxious to learn more about growing Native American plants and creating habitat for wildlife. If this sounds like you, you've come to the right place. In today's episode, Native Edible Plants Part 1, Wildflower Teas, we chat with Bob Henriksen from the Nebraska Statewide Arboretum over some benefits of homegrown food, what native prairie plants make interesting and excellent herbal teas, and some extra benefits these plants also provide. Enjoy. Okay. Hey, how's it going? Good. So Bob, if someone didn't listen to our last episode, can you introduce yourself again? Let us know a little bit about what you do. Sure. Hi, I'm Bob Henriksen, and I'm a horticulture program coordinator with the Statewide Arboretum. And uh, gosh, I've started at the Statewide Arboretum back in the, the year 2000. And uh, prior to that, I worked at the uh, Nebraska State Fairgrounds, and that's where I kind of cut my teeth with native plants and kind of inherited a, a native plant garden. So that's what kind of got me introduced because there was a native plant garden there and uh actually they call it nebraska wildflower garden and uh, that kind of caused me to immerse myself in the world of nebraska natives right to learn all i could about them and then my goal was to demonstrate those plants at the state fairground so now with the statewide arboretum what my responsibility is growing plants so we grow a lot of natives not strictly natives mind you but uh, mostly natives and get those available to the consumer which is great because you know when i was first starting this thing you could hardly find them anywhere available uh, to get to plant in your garden you know so so that's kind of in a nutshell so I'm into, into natives, I'm into uh, the uses of native plants and, you know, historically and, and present day, you know, learned a lot about that these plants are important and, and uh, we need to go back to move forward when it comes to traditional medicines and traditional uh, food stuff and uh, the potential's huge, in my opinion. How long have you been delving into that area of horticulture, like the edibleness of things or the utility of yeah. plants? I would say that all started probably when I was at the fairgrounds. I went to hear a lady give a talk. There used to be like three different programs there, uh, three different uh, uh, slots of programs. And one was a lady uh, named Kay Young that had just written a book called Wild Seasons. So she was mm -hmm. one of the speakers 
So I kind of was interested. So I slipped in there, even though I was on the uh, organizing staff or whatever, you know, I kind of slipped in to, to hear her talk and ended up getting a book from her that day because she was, had her books and signed it. And uh, I was on my way. That is what kind of intrigued me. And kind of the first plant that started it all for me was the stinging nettle, believe it or not. <laughs> so where I was like going, wait a minute, this isn't just survival food. That's kind of what I thought is like, do you do this because you you're looking to survive on this? No, it's, it's that gatherer instinct in all of us. And that's what Kay talked about in her book is that there's something innate about humans, the hunter gatherer and the human uh, psyche. And that has been kind of taken away from us. Right. When we gather, we're getting in our car, going to the store, right, with our grocery list, mm -hmm. rather than getting out in nature. And because when we get out in nature nowadays, it's like, okay, how long is this loop trail? Will I be done with this loop trail in an hour? Meaning we're just walking on the trail and not really immersing ourselves in nature. And what I saw with, with collecting wild edible plants or plants for medicine is a good excuse to get out of nature to search for something while you're there, you know, to keep your eyes and ears open, um, looking for things and gathering something or collecting something. Cause then that's just an innate human nature. Mm, I like the idea that gathering feels earned. Like the only cost is a physical cost. It's not like you got to get out a, you know, a credit card or you got to get out a wad of cash to, right. to buy stuff. It's, it's all about how much labor you want to invest in and manually harvesting stuff. Yeah. And you're right. That's the biggest challenge is, is we're all busy, right? Humans are busy and setting aside that time is easier said than done. Right. I mean, I should be collecting something today. Yeah, <laughs> right? It's no kind kidding. of the way, I mean, no I'm, seriously, there's, there wouldn't be a day go by that, during the growing season that you couldn't collect something. That's mm -hmm. what, that's really what's kind of like, why I'm on shows like yours is say, let's, let's, let's get the word out. Mm -hmm. And so other people become inspired too, like, and not just one or two plants, you know, learn a half dozen a year, learn a dozen of them a year. Right. I, I think too, cause I was just teaching a class at city sprouts in Omaha. Um, and it, it was titled like the homegrown micro prairie. And part of what we talked about is when, you know, the original explorers came to the Great Plains, they remarked on the endless forage, just the endless amounts of foraging that could be done and described it as like this Elysium sort of place where oh, there wow. was just an abundance of things. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, like you can go, you know, us who have naturalistic, you know, wildflower gardens and, and more like meadowscapes and stuff, we can literally go out and just harvest stuff nonstop all year long if we really wanted to. Um, so I think that's a good point to make is it's kind of another reason for native gardening or naturalistic gardening is not only you could have beautiful flowers that are good for pollinators and yada, 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 but you also have a pretty endless supply of of stuff, whether medicinal, whether edible, whether can be used, you know, and making homemade soap or, you know, dyeing your clothes or what have right. you. Right. Just Nature's medicine chest, basically. Yeah, right yeah. Ex exactly. I guess, why are you excited to reach people about these regionally native or Nebraska native 
edible plants. Uh, what's the most exciting prospect for you getting this information out to people? You know, again, I used to think it was more about survival food, but then I've discovered, well, it's it's not just survival food, it's actually tasty food. So mm. I'm out to introduce people to say something like, you know, still to this day, if I talk to people about eating stinging nettles, they go, mm, no, no, thanks. You know, <laughs> no, not going to do it. You know, so so for me, my excitement is once I get them to actually try it, that they said it was tasty, right? Um, yeah, so I'm 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 into the health benefits of it, the the nutrition. I think that's what has kind of surprised me that okay, so uh, why bother with a certain plant? Well, it might be full of minerals and vitamins, right? That we're getting in our diet. So I think for me, it's it's I'm, I've learned in in what makes me happy in eating food because I like food. Um, like somebody said, it's like, well, you enjoy cooking. And I'm like, well, it's not so much enjoying cooking. I just like eating well. Mm. Now I enjoy cooking. If I have plenty of time, there's no time constraints, you know, no, you don't have to be somewhere by seven o'clock. So you have to quickly whip up something, right. Uh, something easy and quick. Yada, yada. I'm more about diversity and diet. And, and so if I have a lot of stuff put in my food to kind of take it to that next level, and I think a, a friend of mine said it best, I remember we were, oh, maybe it was a wild edible potluck, maybe we were just eating wild edible mushrooms or something, and he often says, I wonder what the rich people are eating because they're not eating as well as us tonight, when you could look at this stuff, go, wait a minute, this is like, this is like foraged food, this, there's no way that's five star, and I think that intrigues me that yes, it is five star food. Um, it's just not available in restaurants. And I look at it as the restaurant industry is really, unfortunately, unaware of a lot of this stuff. There's a few restaurants out there in this nation that probably really focuses on the lo on local food. But when they're focusing on local food, it's locally grown broccoli or locally grown cauliflower, right? They're not mm -hmm. they're not focusing on using some wild food so my dream would be like well inspiring enough folks to where we actually have people cultivating this somewhere and then selling it to restaurants or selling it to grocery stores so it does become available and if we can't if we need to bypass grocery stores and restaurants because they aren't they don't smell a market they don't smell a buck to be made well then it's us to, up to us as our not not a, from a consumer sense but a user sense, right? Like, well, I'm going to use this stuff. And if the restaurant's not going to carry it, either I better grow it or I better go out and harvest it. If we can encourage people to just stop and be present and really deeply think about things and be open-minded to the possibilities, um, that's where the magic happens. Uh, I think we, we, the, the plants we've got lined up to talk about today are really, really cool and interesting. Um, so the first one, the first theme I thought we could talk about is plants that are have been historically used to make teas. Okay. Um, so the first one I have is common yarrow. Uh, I wanted to mention that yarrow has got a lot of medicinal uses. So anyone who's interested in it can go and look up those online or in a book, uh, some of the books we've talked about today even. Um, but what I read is that the Blackfoot tribe would make a tea out of the leaves and the flowers. And 
what I love about the plant itself, and you can add some things too. Um, yarrow, if you if you've never grown it in your garden, it's it readily self seeds, so you will start to have it pop up here and there everywhere um, around where you're growing it. It likes to seed itself, um, and even spreads by rhizome too. Um, so it can be kind of aggressive, but I think it fills in gaps really, really nicely. It's a great complement to all the other colorful stuff you can have growing out in your garden. Um, if you cut it back, it'll rebloom. Um, so just a great plant. I th I thought it was neat that um, I was always confused whether teas were made with flowers or leaves. Um, and it seems like it just depends on the plant. But this right. one, apparently they use both. Yeah, you're right. It does depend on the plant. And I can tell you, yarrow is a very bitter pill. Um, it doesn't make a very, the flowers are probably the best part for the medicine. But when you make that, man, I'm telling you, it's like, it's it's very bitter, meaning you're not going to drink this tea saying, boy, that's that's quite delicious. But just <laughs> making it with the leaves, I found that, it, you know, it is, it's more much more milder with the leaves. But man, so we we talk about that herbal medicine chest, you know, say, well, what part of the garden is this? You know, like say you're creating a native plant garden and now you could disperse these plants throughout your garden, whatever. But it's fun to say, well, that part of my garden is my is my medicine chest. Well, what do you mean? Well, OK, so somebody cut their finger. And what's the first thing we do? Well, first get direct pressure on it, right? And, uh, you know, keep it from bleeding, you know, and I, I still am amazed by that people don't know that simple little act. They'll sit there looking at their cut finger dripping blood. And I'm like, oh, dude, get some gauze on that thing and some direct pressure and stop the bleeding. When I see I'm cut, I very seldom even get a drop of blood out of that thing because I've got the pressure on it right away. And if I don't have a towel or a gauze or something like that, I'm just using my finger until I can find it, right? <laughs> or whatever I'm cutting. Well, just just the the benefits uh, and the history of common yarrow for wound healing is pretty amazing. You could look up uh, history of yarrow used for uh, for uh, cuts and, and abrasions and things like that. Yar yarrow is also commonly used as a remedy for cold and flu season, right? So that's one mm -hmm. of the, the big things for it. Uh, for as a tea, uh, but wound healing is number one. And from what I understand, uh, Civil War soldiers, you know, you weren't, weren't always near a hospital. So where did they learn this from? Soldiers, you know, were marched from one battle to the next. And if they if they were marching and they found a patch of yarrow, they were picking the leaves of that plant and putting it in there uh, wherever they could find a place to stash it. Because if their mm. buddy got shot, and was bleeding out the hospital's not there well they would use that yarrow as a wound dressing mm. and i've done it before where my wife pat cut her hand or something i can't remember what she cut but i immediately went out into the yard and and got yarrow and i chopped it up really fine added a little oil to it for a, to make it stick and that's what we that's mm. what we covered her wound with so like a poultice uh, yeah. yeah just a simple poultice uh mm. before we got a band-aid you know so here use this for your direct pressure and don't you know keep that leaf on there and i'm not saying everybody's going to do this but i've heard from a, a, a clinical herbalist actually in omaha at four winds healing center uh, nicholas is one of nebraska's only clinical herbalists that means they can legally prescribe herbs as medicine 
because mm. they've gone through all the training. He had heard of counts of yarrow saving people's lives, like like we're talking serious cut where they would probably bleed out before they got to the doctor. They get to the doctor and the doctor's removing some plant that they put inside the wound to keep the wound from uh, bleeding. And the doctor basically saying, well, I don't know what this plan is, but it basically saved this person's life. <laughs> mm. And so I'm not saying you're going to do that with Yarrow, but it made me think, I wonder what that doctor really thought. Did that doctor go home that night and say, I'm going to look this up and see what what's the deal with this plant? Because they're not teaching Yarrow in traditional medicine, right? So that's why it's often regarded as hocus pocus. So when I tell people, when you want the real deal Yarrow, pluck up a few leaves, rub it hard and smell it. It should, should smell very pungent and taste some of it, see how bitter it is. And it, then, you know, you got the real deal because some of the yarrows, the cultivars that have been developed aren't as strongly smelling as that. Does that make the cultivar a bad plant? No, but it may not be the most effective medicine, right? So yeah, you started off with a good one. It is probably worldwide known as one of the, the best herbs out there to have for for herbal healing period mm. yeah i i like the way it smells um it's a great ground cover plant and mm -hmm. it's super useful there's just tons and tons of ways that people have used it in the past for medicine for food um so really really cool uh another one you wanted to talk about wild bee balm yeah um so if anyone wanted to know the latin menarda as uh, the bee balm family so I read that this one could be made into tea and that the leaves, yeah. shoots, and flowers are all edible. Yeah. Um, so what you're talking about, uh, one that she's referring to is, is, is wild bee balm, the Monarda fistulosa, and it's also called wild bergamot. So Stephanie, if you go out to the eastern United States, let's say upstate New York, there's another Monarda species called Monarda didyma. Mm -hmm. That is the one that most of the, uh, and I think it's spelled D-I-D-Y-M-A. It's a mm -hmm. funny one to pronounce, but didyma is also called Oswego tea. Maybe you've seen that name before, or Oswego uh, Monarda. Well, there's a tribe in upstate New York because they never talk about this in classes. Where did they get the name Oswego? Well, there's there's a tribe in New York called the Oswego Indians, and they use that plant extensively for medicine, just like the native the, the Plains tribes use the Monarda fistulosa or our native wild bee balm. So mm -hmm. Didyma, all the different cultivars you see in the trade from Cambridge Scarlet to uh Oh gosh, raspberry wine. There's all these different mm -hmm. names. Those were all derived from Didyma. There's very few Monarda fistulosa cultivars out in the trade. There's a few, but they were not selected for medicine. <laughs> they were selected for flower color or whatever, maybe a little darker pink or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. But get this, when I fell down the rabbit hole with wild bee balm, um, if, you, if you Google under the USDA plants database, there's six known variations that have been identified that have different enough morphological characteristics that they said, this one's Monarda fistulosa variety menthifolia. There's mm -hmm. Monarda fistulosa variety fistulosa. There's, I'd have to look it up to learn all of them, but there's like six of them. So as a plant nerd, that intrigued me saying, well, are they that different? What's mm -hmm. going on here that they named a variation within a species? 
And then if you type in one of those variations, you'll find native range of Monarda fistulosa variety menthifolia. And I'll tell you in a sec why I'm interested in that one. So the name intrigued me, menthifolia, right? Mm -hmm. Menthol-like or mint-like, right? Mm -hmm. Well, if you look it up on the map, it's more northwestern Nebraska, southwestern uh, South Dakota. Think Rosebud Indian Reservation, or you know where the Pine Ridge is, the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation is by the Black Hills and the, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. the Badlands areas of South Dakota. Well, that's where variety menthifolia grows. And the reason I say this, folks, is because if you look up that plant, the dang thing grows from upstate New York. You know, it's basically all 48 lower U.S. It's native to everybody. So these variations occur in different locations in the country. So what intrigued me was, can I grow all six variations in Nebraska? And if so, why would I want to do that? Does one have a better flower than another? Because back in the day, I was interested in its ornament. Now, what intrigues me is variety menthifolia is what the Lakota recognized. They recognized five different variations of the plant. Another reference I could tell you about is, um, oh gosh, I have it here. So if I can, um, let's see if I can find it. Yeah, here we go. So this book, uh, Stephanie, I don't know if you've seen before. Can you can you see it here? I can uh, see it. it. Uses of plants. Okay. Yeah, uses of plants by the Indians of the Missouri River region. Well, guess what? That's where we live, right? So mm -hmm. this is by Melvin Gilmore. So you need to get this book. This was written around, oh, in the early 1900s. And Melvin okay. went around and interviewed a bunch of elders before those plants disappeared and before those elders disappeared because he wanted to know what they truly felt about those plants. And they identified five, five different variations of the Monarda fistulosa, meaning some smelled better than others. And Kay Young, that lady I was telling you about from Wild Seasons, interviewed people from the Rosebud Indian Reservation up in South Dakota. They gave her seed to one that she named in honor of Lakota and Prairie Moon Nursery has been selling that seed source for decades now. If you go to Prairie Moon's website, they call it Wape Washtemna. And that is the Lakota name for that lemon monarda. And that baby is the best for tea. I mean, it's lemony scented. It's some of the monardas you smell, they almost smell kind of skunky a little bit, kind of strongly flavored, still a nice scent, mind you. But when you compare it to that menthifolia, you're like, wow, I can see why they said that. One of the names translated into ill smelling. Well, that's probably one they avoided. Okay, so it makes a great tea. So what? No, it was used internally for indigestion, intestinal cramps, nausea, flatulence, fevers, influenza, colds, bronchitis, whooping cough, sore throats, chronic chronic things, chronic problems. Okay, well, Native Americans didn't pull it apart and study the chemistry of that plant, but others have. And those people have found that Monarda fistulosa has more thymol in it than thyme. Why don't we call thyme thyme? I don't know, but you know the herb thyme that we all mm -hmm. use in Italian cooking, this pizza spices? Mm -hmm. Here's another rabbit hole for you. Google medicinal benefits of thyme. It has it's chocked full of medicinal benefits, mainly cold and flu season. So wild bergamot, the wild bee balm to Native Americans was a cold preventer. They would start drinking it 
late fall, early winter to, to prevent colds from coming. There's plants out there for us during cold and flu season to keep the cold and flu at bay. You're not going to drink wild bergamot tea and your cold all of a sudden disappears, but you're going to have less colds. And when you do get a cold, its duration is not going to be as long as it might be. Say you get a cold and it lasts five days. If you, if you start using herbal remedies, your cold might only last two days. Oh, and you may not get them as often. You know, maybe, oh, I get six colds a year. You start doing this, you might only get one a year. And it only lasted for two days. Oh, and guess what? Your symptoms weren't as severe. Your symptoms were more mild. So that's what preventative medicine using mm -hmm. herbal remedies is all about. I, I was just about to say, so in a way, like we're talking about preventative, like a natural form of like preventative care. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So back to that thymol that I touched on, T-H-Y-M-O-L. So Google health benefits of thymol. So thymol is being studied for cancer prevent prevention. That's how powerful of a, of a, Oh, and you're saying, you so you're saying that is in Medarda, but it's exactly. also in time. Oh, exactly. Okay. But okay. it's, but even the reason I say that is the, the and I think it's pronounced thymol rather than thymol, whatever. Mm -hmm. I'm going to keep saying thymol, but that thymol, there's more thymol than Menarda. So that, well, wait a uh, minute, that intrigued me. And I'm like, mm -hmm. does that mean I can use it as a, as an herb, as a spice to flavor my meat, to flavor my food? Why, yes, you can. So that Minardi you can make into tea, but you also can dry it and use it as a seasoning because it tastes very similar to thyme, right? Um, Do they use, what else like, have you heard of the leaves or shoots or anything being used as like a salad green or how else would you know about the plant? Uh, not necessarily, because I think the leaves, uh, certainly not the roots I hadn't heard for anything or the shoots. It was mainly the leaves that would be used for a spice mm. or- okay. um, but when they would harvest it for medicine, from what I understand, reading from Melvin Gilmore's book here, they like to harvest it in the flower bud stage. So if you notice the Menarda when it's in bud, just about ready to open, you know, you maybe have a few of little bright pink flowers just starting. That's the time to harvest it because guess what's happening? All that plant's energy, all the benefits of that plant are now up in the very tip tops of that plant. Does that make sense mm -hmm. that, that the plant's trying to bloom and go to seed? It's not doing this to benefit us humans, or is it, right? You could, you could talk about mystic powers and all that stuff. But so to the herbalist, to the Native American herbalist, you would harvest it when it's in bud stage, when all that energy is going up, and they would mm -hmm. harvest it during a, new, uh, a full moon phase. And what does that mean? That doesn't mean you're harvesting it in the dead of night during a full moon, but we're during that full moon phase, which is often a five-day phase, just like there's the new moon phase, there's the full moon phase. And that's when the energy of the earth, the energy of the planet is going up too. Like they talk about the tides during the moon, right? So if the moon, the moon phases can move water, i.e. the tides and affect mm -hmm. tides, you don't think there's no energy going on there, folks? Because a lot of people, that. yeah, a lot yeah. of people regard that as hocus pocus. And I understand why, but I know plenty of herbalist friends that harvest the tips of plants, the tops of plants, the energy going up to the top of the plant during a full moon. Isn't that cool stuff? Yeah, it's so fascinating. And I'm glad we've gone this direction because I, I, I'm learning some things and I'm getting excited. So that's really yeah. cool that you mentioned that.
hey the next the next plant uh, yeah. awesome if if someone's not already growing it you've got to have it um lead plant uh the flowers yeah. are just amazing bicolored uh purple and orange flowers very unusual unique wonderful um the leaves make a tea I've never had lead plant tea, but I have it in my garden, so I'm going to make it soon. I don't know if it's a bitter tea or it's a good tasting tea. No, in fact, Stephanie, I will tell you when you get around and do it, you're going to say, where have you been all my life? <laughs> that, that book I mentioned, Wild Seasons, uh, that's that's one of the first plants I did too. I'd mentioned nettles with you, but mm. what's fun about having Kay's book, and I know somebody who got Kay's book, Wild Seasons, and her goal was to do every, like to collect everything that's in her book in year one. Mm -hmm. And she said, I made it through about 30 plants. And, and so again, that, that we're all busy got in the way. Right. But lead plants is one of the first things I made. And, you know, left lead plant has these compound little leaves, little gray green leaves. They're these like tiny little leaves that are on what we call a rachis or a little stem, right? Mm -hmm. Little individual leaves where one, four inch or three inch stem might have 20 little leaflets on it right mm -hmm. so all you do is you, you when you're out in the field you're harvesting the whole the whole uh set of leaves if you will kind of just snipping off that little rachis and putting them in a bag or whatever until you get home and then when you get home and you you don't have to do it this way but then i when i get home i'm literally stripping those little leaves up right off that stem and they okay. strip right off try it that when you get home tonight pluck off one of those leaves and then strip it and you go, oh, I see what he means. And then you can just strip it right onto newspaper and let it dry on that newspaper for say three to four days. You can finish them on the lowest setting in the oven. What I mean by that folks is when you, when you finish it, you want to make sure it's crispy dry because if it's not, sometimes leaves can mold in your baggie and you would hate mm. to pull it out in the middle of December and find out your leaves got moldy. But that being said, once it's dry, you can. that's when you want to make the tea. If you try to make the tea with the fresh leaves, it's such a mild tea that you're probably not going to get a strong enough flavor. Drying it concentrates the flavors. And honestly, I haven't looked into, is there any medicinal benefits? I wouldn't doubt it if there is. But I'm convinced if it had a better name called prairie tea or something like that, this stuff could go commercial. It's that good. So get this, okay, now you have the leaflets and you want to make your tea. I've made five gallon, you know, those orange uh, mm -hmm. uh, containers you use at, at softball games or at soccer games, right? The back in the day before all we used was bottled water now, but back in the day, you actually had one of those orange jugs. I've made enough tea to make five gallons to serve at, I don't know, events just to get people to try it. And it's funny watching the reaction you know, at first they're thinking, whatever, this stuff's not going to be that good. And then they try it, they go, hmm, it's just as good as any Lipton sun tea you've made, any Louisiana, or how is it pronounced, Louisiana uh, sun tea, mm. just as good. The color is very similar. So one tablespoon of dried leaflets per one cup of water. So this tea is a little different though, Stephanie. Most teas, you bring the water to a boil. Okay. And then you add then you add your leaves and you shut it down and, and you cover it and you let it steep for three minutes, right? Mm -hmm. If you want a strong tea, we call that a concoction. And that concoction is more often used in medicine, meaning you would steep it for like 10 to 20 minutes, not just three. Mm -hmm. But most most people want a mild tea, right? Well, with lead plant, 
you actually put the leaves on the cold water, bring it to a boil with those leaves in there. Once it comes to a, a roiling boil, you turn it back down to a simmer and let it simmer for like three or four minutes and forget about it. And if it goes longer than three or four minutes, I've learned, ain't going to hurt a thing. Doesn't make it more bitter. Doesn't make it, you know, basically it's such a mild thing. You have to almost cook the lead plant leaves versus just letting it steep, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Now you strain the leaflets out and you're ready to roll. You've got a hot tea. But I found when you put that hot tea, let it cool down to room temperature and then put it in the fridge, the cold tea is even better. Hot tea is great. Cold tea is even better. Well, those leaflets that I just strained out of there, I put back in the Tupperware container because you can get three brewings out of one set of leaves. And there's not another plant on the planet that will give you three brewings of delicious tea. So you should be intrigued. You should try it and let this be the year. Now's nice. a good time to do it. <laughs> Yeah. You know, now's a good time to do it. Um, I have to get my leaflets. If you end the season with a quart bag of dried leaflets, you know, you're you're set. Yeah. I I mean, my my lead plant just right by my front door, it's a real healthy size. I just harvested some some flower seed heads off of it to dry out um and start plants cool. with. So it's right there. <laughs> There's it's right really there. no excuse. Right. Yeah. And and you know what you can do, folks, you don't have to completely disrobe your plant you know you're taking a leaflet here or you're taking a leaflet there you know I kind of work around the plant if you will and at the most what I'm doing is maybe taking a third of it off that ain't gonna hurt the plant you know even if I took half of it it wouldn't hurt the plant that's why I wait until later in the season right because the plant's done blooming it's setting seed I'm like a I'm like a predator, like a cow or a moose or a buffalo or a deer coming to eat on it, right? <laughs> Not going to hurt the plant. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I mean, it's kind of like the concept too, when you go like you cut things for bouquets or or you thin stuff out just to harvest some seed material. It's just, right. you don't, you know, you don't go all in one spot or you don't do the whole thing. You just kind of like piecemeal take here and there and, and you would never know. You would never know. Right. Right. Our our next one is New Jersey tea, which I've struggled to get this growing in my garden. I'm sure there's an obvious reason why. Uh, but the leaves are used to make tea. Mm -hmm. And this was used by a lot of different tribes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one. It took me a while to get, I want to say, brave enough. But I'm thinking, I, in fact, I didn't even look it up. I think this was before Google was a common thing. I had gotten it going um, here on East campus and the plant was in all its glory. You know, it's like, okay, you don't call you New Jersey tea for nothing. I'm going to make a tea out of this. So I brought some leaves home, dried them out, made the tea. And I was like, hmm, mild and tasty. Yeah, it's a really pleasant tea. And I think New Jersey tea is another one that got that reputation after the Boston Tea Party. Uh, the big Boston Tea Party, right? Uh, mm. There's a number of plants that the colonists used to replace their Darjeeling that they're no longer getting from Europe. And the the Minarda that we were talking about earlier, Oswego tea was one of those. Another one was New Jersey tea. I mean, with a name like New Jersey, think about it, it was over where the 13 colonies were. So mm -hmm. that was another one. 
And get this, Stephanie, a third one I've learned that we just started growing and offering at the statewide Arboretum. We make sure, I make sure we offer this every year because um, I want people to utilize their garden plants. It's called Sweet Goldenrod. It's oh, uh, yeah. Solidago odora. Mm -hmm. You can Google it where you're at right now if you want while we're talking, but Solidago odora uh, comes from the East. And get this, I looked up the history of it. It's also called Liberty Tea. So they named it Liberty Tea. Oh. Why do you suppose they named it that? Because mm -hmm. it replaced the tea from the Boston Tea Party. So life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? Well, I think sweet goldenrod tea should be in every store, man. Yeah. You know? Well, that's um, interesting. I've seen pictures of the plant. It's fantastic looking goldenrod. Just right? gorgeous. I mean, they all exactly. are, but this one is just right. gorgeous. Uh, exactly good to know and i've seen yeah, that being so, sold i want to say you know there's plenty of places you can find it from now it's not like this rare goldenrod you can't find right. anywhere right exactly um, yeah and i'll tell you it has a when you smell it rub the leaves and smell it to me it kind of if you like if you don't like licorice you're, and there's those people out there you know i think it's the, the same people with the cilantro gene where licorice just mm -mm, not gonna do it you know that is strange licorice. to me they, that's so strange yeah they probably would it. not like this yeah <laughs> okay yeah. and so so you make the tea with this goldenrod from the leaves yes it would be mm -hmm. another process of drying the leaves yep okay yep. cool um another one purple prairie clover yeah and I mean, that's just another fantastic looking plant. You could grow it just because it's so pretty and sweet right. to grow. Amen. Um, but yeah, I guess the Navajo used the leaves to make a tea. Have you tried the prairie clover tea or is that one you haven't tried yet? No, I haven't. And it's funny you should mention that because I learned about it making, I think what I read is makes the finest of prairie teas is what some, oh. <laughs> some dude wrote. And I'm like going... Have you ever done this, Stephanie? So if, if you have a full-grown plant at home, do you have a sizable plant at home you could do this with? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So when you get home, take the take your hands like and and put them against the plant like in a clapping motion, right? Where your palms are all over the plant, and then rub up on that plant yes. and then smell smell the palms of your hands. Mm -hmm. Ah, it's such a beautiful scent. Okay. Why I've why I've never made it into a tea is beyond me. It just haven't done it right and uh probably because it's not right under my nose anymore i don't have it at home i have too much shade my demonstration gardens are gone here so i don't uh have that easy place to go harvest it right in front of my nose right mm. and where i know it's growing somebody probably yell at me for you know cutting <laughs> cutting it back and harvesting it to make a tea out of it no i it's well worth uh checking out and doing Another use for purple prairie clover is after it's done, um, notice uh, in the winter time, late fall in the winter, when those stems have turned brown, um, they also, they had a name, it translated into uh, broomweed, I think it was called. Uh, they would cinch up those those stiff stems to make a broom. Um, oh. it, was, it was like the go-to plant for that. And if you, if you notice when you're cutting it back in the spring or whatever, uh, just notice how stiff those stems are and say ah i see why this would make a good broom material interesting well uh, yet another use 
Not that right. we need any more uses for these plants because there's a million already. Right. <laughs> uh, echinacea. I know we've we've seen sometimes at the store. You know, you go and buy the good brands of teas and the little fancy tea boxes. Um, right. And I've gotten some that you know say they have echinacea in it, and usually echinacea is with something else. It's not a straight echinacea tea that I've mm -hmm. seen. I think there are a couple that are just echinacea only. Um, but what do you think about that one? Have you tried echinacea and tea? Yeah, you know, um, you know, mainly that. what I've done with echinacea, I haven't done a whole lot of uses for it, uh, health benefit wise. And that's unfortunate because if you talk to, um, herbalists that, that are, that know this, um, you know, to the native American tribes, the plains tribes it was probably the most important medicine to them of all the plants and that's saying something um i know an herbalist friend that told me uh her husband who's not into plants but if he gets a, a bad uh winter cold it's another cold and flu season one and he's got a scratchy mm -hmm. throat or like a sort feels a sore throat coming on the first thing he asks her for is where's that one plant that that you have me drink when I when I'm getting a sore throat or whatever and, and that's it it's really uh, a good plant for that it helps reduce inflammation so you know a, a a throat that is swelling right a swollen swollen glands it improves your immunity so it's a good um it could be a good day use tea meaning I drink it during cold and flu season once a day you know just as a preventative because it, uh, it it's high in antioxidants um it is just the cat's meow when it comes to medicine but quite honestly i have i don't get sick much so i don't have a whole lot of experience with it saying man i'm tired of this cough and cold and asthma and i mean it, topically it can use managed skin problems um but main thing is it's touted for is is its immune system building mm -hmm. you know your your immune system support which we all need more I know the book that I was reading, um, the Native American Ethnobotany book, it just listed a ton of historical uses for it medically. Yeah. Um, the one thing with purple coneflower or, um, you know, any other echinacea variety, you got to watch out for aster yellows. Um, yeah. I try to remind people of this a few times a year. Um, you know, every now and then you'll get what basically looks like a mutated flower. Uh, it'll look mm -hmm. like it's literally sprouting leaves. Um, instead of petals. Uh, and yep. I tell people like, don't look at the small ones, wait till you see a mature flower. Um, because you can really tell if if a whole mature flower top is, is all green. Um, right. And especially if the leaves are looking a little yellowish and kind of weird. Um, you got to pull the whole plant out. You know, it's funny, those aster yellows were never an issue back in the 80s, when I was cutting my teeth and gardening in the 90s and whatnot it started showing up. It's like, what's going on here? If people, if people got to the point, Stephanie, where I thought they weren't going to plant purple coneflower anymore because aster yellows mm -hmm. was such an issue. Mm -hmm. So I can tell you folks, if you want, don't want it in your garden. Um, I mean, buying it at the garden center, buying it at the nursery. Um, if that plant has been, um, in the nursery a long time. So it's an insect that's moving that disease around from plant to plant. I think it's a leaf hopper is what yeah. I read. Yeah. And so if you're growing it from seed, 
you're not going to have that issue because it wasn't spread from another plant, right? It's not on the seed. The disease is not on the seed, right? And so you can really uh, keep it at bay by just growing seed or planting seed-grown echinaceas because a lot of them in the trade are either done by tissue culture now or division, meaning it's a, it's genetically identical to its brother next to it. All those cultivars that are out there in the trade tend to be more susceptible to aster yellows than the straight-up native species like pale purple cone flower um, is, is, but then pale purple cone flower has issues. You know, the issues are, oh, it, it gets tall and it gets floppy. Yeah. Well, that's because it's native to some very dry, nasty soil. If you see an image of where it grows naturally, you'd go, oh, I can see why it flops in my garden with my rich, heavy clay. Um, you know, it likes to grow in rocky, nasty soils, right? And so give it tough love, meaning never, ever water it unless you're establishment. Yes, but Oh, but wait, Bob, we're in a historic drought. I don't care. Don't water your echinacea pallida. It doesn't need you. It just doesn't. It survived millennia without you. It has seen 30-year droughts, and it's still here. Come on, man. What did it do during the Dust Bowl? Disappear? No, it came back. Probably in the form of seed, but it came back, right? So, yeah, Um Aster yellows can be prevented, but as you probably know, you're supposed to destroy the whole plant so it doesn't get transferred to another one, right? And um, I do. I mean, I just make a point of, and see, I the way I garden, it's wilder. So, you know, my coneflower, they just self-seed. So right. even if I go and I dig out that one where I'm very clearly like, okay, this is aster yellows. This isn't just right. a new flower, like looking a little green at the beginning. Mm -hmm. I go and I dig it out, but see, like literally every time I do that, I look down and there's like two or three seedlings that are just going to grow up next year anyway. Ready to take its place. <laughs> so yeah, it's I, it's kind of this cycle in the garden where, yeah, I lose a couple coneflower every year and it's not a big deal because I let them self-seed. Um, so yeah, just something to be knowledgeable about. But Anise Hyssop, I wanted to bring that one up and not forget about yeah. it. Uh, yeah. because you know you mentioned kind of taking your hand and, and putting it in a cup kind of shape and and pulling on the plant material and then smelling your I do that all the time with a new right. because I just love the licorice scent <laughs> right um so that's another one that can be used for tea if you use the leaves um and honestly just the flowers themselves are awesome um, they're just the sweet pale lavender color. They look really nice next to the other bright prairie flowers that are, you know, all sorts of different colors. Looks great next to yellow. Um, looks great uh, as a backdrop for some butterfly weed. Um, and yeah, I guess lots of different tribes used it to make tea. Um, yeah. Another, another. I, I don't think I've really tried any of these native teas besides the echinacea tea. So I've got to yeah, do it. And, yeah, and is a, a really tasty tea. And this brings me to, you can't do that with the lead plant we were talking about earlier, but you could with bee balm, you could with anisysip, you could with, uh, oh, echinacea, not so much, but any flavored uh, leaf or, or scented leaf, like, like mint, for example, or pineapple sage or whatever. Uh, do a, what's called a cold brew. So, um, that's my favorite part of summer when people ask me what do you miss most about the summer it's that 
because I can go out and garden. I will this evening when I get home. I, I'll just change out the picture and say, whose turn is it today? So what I'll do is I'll I'll go out and pinch the top three to four inches of the plant, maybe only three inches, right? So I'll work around the plant and pinch off the tops, leaves and stems and all, and I'll put those in a, in a big pitcher and then fill that with water. How many leaves and stems do I add? I don't know. I just grab a big handful, right? A, a big grub, stuff it in that pitcher and then put that pitcher in the refrigerator. I don't let it sit out in the sun, so it like a sun tea, or I don't heat it up on the stove. We call this a cold brew. And a cold brew is where you can get the most health benefits out of that plant. And you can look up anise hyssop. Anise hyssop is a cooling herb. So it's the best herb as a tea, specifically a cold brew tea that you could make for a hot summer day. So if you're coming home, it's 102 out, it's humid, you've had a long day, maybe you've been working in the garden, you, you, you're soaked in sweat. What are you looking forward to most? Walking to the fridge and saying, that's right, I made that tea to eat. So it takes two to three days, folks. So if you put it mm. in that pitcher of water, let it sit there. Sure, you can try it 24 hours later, or 12 hours later, whatever, but you're gonna find it's very mild. So if you leave it in there, forget about it for two or three days, then when you take it out and pour that full first icy glass and drink a whole big glass of anise hyssop cold brew tea, it's going to cool you down. And get this, what people do for um, sunburns, um, like uh, to relieve pain in the chest, it's like for cold and flu symptoms as well, anise hyssop is for. Mm. So what you can do is you can make a strong brewed tea. This would be more of a stovetop tea, right, where you're where you're letting it steep for 10 minutes to 20 minutes rather than just three minutes, right? So now all of a sudden you have a very dark tea that when you taste it, you're like, dude, you're too strong for me. You're bitter now. Where you pulled out all those compounds out of the plant, you let that water cool, and then you put a rag in there or a towel in there and soak it in that strong tea. And then you put that over your congested chest or you put that over... Uh, uh, that towel over a sunburn area and it will cool your skin. Uh, very effective. I have not done that, but I've heard anise hyssop and calendula are the cat's meow when it comes to, and you've all met those people. So you want to become that person where uh, uh, your cousin Joey's calling you saying, Hey, uh, my, my, you know, my, my son, Sammy fell asleep out while he was uh, sunbathing fell asleep and and whoops now all of a sudden he's burned head to toe right we've all met those people where they're like literally just miserable like yeah. there's nothing they Aww. can do they can't they can't sleep they can't they, oh what about aloe i'll try a little aloe vera sure it might help a little bit i know people that have taken baths a cold bath mind you or a a right not a hot water bath when you're burned from head to toe but they'll add a strong tea of anise hyssop so the tea you'll make on the stovetop and then you'll add that to your bath water or you'll make a calendula tea on the stovetop and you'll add that to your bath water. And then they said it kicked the, it, it, like the pain went away. It was like, mm. well, sure, you still have red skin and you're burned, but it certainly alleviates the pain. So I'm told I don't have that practical experience, but I know mm. people that have. I would have liked to have tried that like nine years ago when I got really badly burned at Taste of Omaha one year. <laughs> That might yes. have been that might have been better. <laughs> right. Nowadays you'd be saying you'd be Googling uh herbs to use to alleviate sunburn pain. Mm -hmm. Right. 
boom. Mm -hmm. And then yeah. you're ready to go crawl down that rabbit hole because there'll be a ton of herbs that do it for you. What about Virginia mountain mint? Because I know that's one you yeah. talked about maybe wanting to bring up. Yeah, it's it's one of my favorites for that cold brew tea. Makes a fantastic tea, folks. It's like, you know, everybody's heard of mint, spearmint, peppermint, chocolate mint, right? English mint, all these different mints. And the first thing they go is no. Why? Because it's so aggressive. Well, it runs all over the place. And the reason you have an aggressive mint is because you're not using it enough. Well, it, yeah. it grows rampant. How can I use it? I mean, there's no way I can use all that. If you start making these uh, um, cold brew teas, you will find you're using your mint up. Mm. Because if you're, especially if you're making it once a week. And so anyway, uh, mountain mint is not an aggressive runner. It's not a mentha species, it's a pycnanthemum species. So it's a different animal than spearmint will ever be. It the, the patch will widen a little bit every year, but I wouldn't say it's aggressive. And in fact, you want it to widen every year so it gives you more harvest. Pollinator magnet, the pollinators go crazy for it. Pollinators go crazy for Monarda fistulosa. Pollinators go crazy for lead plant. Pollinators go crazy for all, all the plants we've been talking about. Yeah. Why is that? I ask myself. I'm convinced, Stephanie, that they're getting the same medicine we are in the nectar and in the pollen. And because they don't have the diverse diet that they used to have back before we plowed up all the prairies and, and everybody went to turf, to asphalt, to rooftops, to concrete, they it's a food desert. If the bees are indeed getting food, which they are, they're not getting the same diverse diet that they used to get, i.e. a diet with medicine in their food. That's why the hive colony collapse disorder, the virial mites that bother the honeybees, and I'm even talking about the farming bee here, the, the non-native bee. We don't know what's happening to the native bees because we can't study them as easy because they're not confined. We can study the honeybee. That's why it often gets picked on for studies and, and it's notably declining because it costs humans money. Well, the native bees, we don't know what's happening to them because nobody can really get a, get a handle on it. But I'm convinced that if we plant these medicinal plants in our herb garden, in our garden at home, you're going to be benefiting the bees for that little taste of medicine they're getting. So why are bees clamoring literally like they're in a hurry? You see that in the fall when the, they're all over the goldenrod with the asters and you're going, oh, used to say things like, boy, they know what's coming. Better hurry and up eat now because winter's right around the corner. No, they're going to clamor over. They're clamoring over a mountain mint right now and it's midsummer. Mm -hmm. Winter's not right around the corner. Why are they clamoring over this one? Well, guess what? Uh, Saladago, the uh, goldenrods are chocked full of medicine. It's it's an amazing medicinal plant that's been used in Europe for centuries, mm. and yet it's a North American native. How did the Europeans find out about this? What what the heck? So yeah, if you want to fall down a rabbit, medicinal benefits of goldenrod. I'm really blown away by a lot of the stuff I've been reading. Um, I've been looking at two books. Um, one of them is Native American Ethnobotany by Daniel Mormon, um, and then the other one is Iwigara. Um, I just think those are both really fascinating because it's really opened my mind to just I basically a pharmacopoeia of stuff. Um, yeah. yeah. And and I'm 
to, to me, I, I like the idea of, especially of the plants where not a single part of it is not useful. Um, those are the most fascinating cases to me, but where you can yeah. use the leaves, you can use the flowers, you can use the stems, you can use the roots. Um, that's just incredible to me. Right. Um, and even from the stamp, like I'm someone who composts things. Um, so even from that standpoint, I feel like, oh, well, you know, if there's this plant where, you know, only the root is edible or whatnot, like I right. know that I'm not in my mind, I'm also not going to waste that plant because I'm just going to compost the rest of it. Um, right. Or, you know, like uh, clip seeds from seed heads from the top of it. And then, you know, you use that for your next year's seed supply. So right. um, I like that idea of being resourceful and, and trying to use what we have available to us. Um, Cause it's got all these, you know, native plants, there's all these connotations like this is the right thing to do to help pollinators. And this is the right thing to do to return these plants to a depleted ecosystem and, and yada, yada, yada. But then I like the idea too, that not only are we doing those things firstly, we kind of get the added benefit of putting more useful things around us than turf grass. Cause we all know we can't, we can't go and, and harvest our turf grass for, right. for medicinal or edible uses. So. Exactly. The one that originally set me off on this is called Wild Seasons. And the mm. whole thing, the premise is, is, is going out and collecting is that, you know, whose time is it now? So again, it, it's an excuse for you to say, well, I better get out there because by next week, this plant's going to be done blooming. So you, it really got you to pay attention to the plant's clock rather mm. than the human's calendar. Um, Native Americans didn't have a calendar on the wall that said, okay, it's May 15th. Their calendar was the plant in bloom. So, so using a plant as the blooming calendar, lead plant, for example, was one of those blooming calendars. It, they named it Buffalo Bellow Plant because when lead plant was in bloom, they knew the buffalo were to so soon be in rut. So when a buffalo is in rut, uh, the hormones are going, the males bellow, you know, they make that bellowing sound to attract the females and whatnot to let them know I'm the leader of this harem, right? Well, they, they use the lead plant to say it is time. I just think it'll be fun to do a part two and a, you know, whenever you want to come back on, gosh, there's just so there's, there's hundreds of plants we could talk about. So, um, it'll be nice to continue in the future and, and talk about more plants. Amen. Uh, yeah. Well, I love the idea of having a food forest in the garden. Uh, we like it for the pollinators, but also if we can grow our own food, more power to us. Amen. It was great having you on. Um, and I'll look forward to talking to you in the future. I'm going to make some cold brew teas this week. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks, Bob. I'm excited. All right. Thanks, Stephanie. Right. See, See you next soon. time. Thank you for tuning in to the Plant Native Nebraska podcast. If you need notes on anything mentioned in today's episode, check our website, plant-native-nebraska.captivate.fm for more info. I want you to know you've made this podcast special just by listening in, but if you found real value in today's talk, you can both financially support future episodes and dive deeper into the topics we share by finding us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash plant native Nebraska. Thanks for listening.
I also wanted to add a special call to action for our listeners, as we are still in need of volunteers to help renovate the Trailhead Rain Garden in Bellevue. You can visit our Plant Society's webpage at bellevuenativeplants.org, click on the annual schedule tab, and scroll down to find the Trailhead Rain Garden workdays. See you there. And as always, thanks for listening.